Well, with God's help, let's turn to the passage that we read, the book of the Revelation, and chapter 1. And midway through verse 12, where John turns to see where the voice came from that he heard, we read that having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. And there follows a, a long description of what this Son of Man appeared like. So I saw seven golden lampstands, and in their midst one like the Son of Man. Now this passage uh, came before me in connection really with the sermon last Lord's Day morning, when we looked at the golden lampstand in Sechariah, chapter 4. And you'll remember from that sermon that the golden lampstand (coughs) was a picture of the church itself. And it's a very simple picture of the church, a very important one, and its importance is twofold. First of all, the church has a lampstand with seven lamps burning, reminds us that It is our duty to be light bearers for God in this world. He has lit our lamp or our candle and we are to shine before him. And you'll remember that we do that by speaking forth the truth and by living out the truth. So in both word and conduct we are lights shining in a dark world. Let your light so shine before men, as the Lord said. The second important part of the image was the oil that came to the lampstand from the olive trees. (coughs) Without the oil, there is no light. And that is a reminder to us as churches and as individual Christians that the source of our light is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, or specifically his Holy Spirit. As he works in our hearts, so we shine. He gives us to speak the truth and he gives us the strength to live out the truth. Just as the text emphasized for us last Sabbath morning, not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. God's light can never shine by human might and human power but by the Spirit of the Lord, as he works in the heart. Now, it's in connection with that that my mind went to this vision in Revelation and the vision that John sees of the risen Christ. And that's how the book of Revelation begins. It begins with John exiled in Patmos on the Lord's day worshipping himself on his own and suddenly hearing a voice. And as he turns round, he sees the Lord Jesus Christ surrounded by seven golden lampstands. Now, just before we look at um, 
what I really want us to look at this morning. I just want to briefly note where John sees the Lord and when he sees him. Uh, First of all, the where. Where does he see Christ? I don't mean where is he himself located, but where does he see the Saviour? Where is he? Well, he is in the midst of seven golden lampstands. Now, we don't need to speculate as to what these lampstands are, what they represent. We could have guessed from the Old Testament, but we're told in the very last verse of the chapter, in the very last words of the last verse, the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And these were the seven congregations in Asia Minor. They're named for us, and the book of Revelation was originally sent to them. If you were on the Isle of Patmos, if you crossed over to Turkey as it is today, you would come first to Ephesus. And then you would follow on the recognized postal Roman route, you would follow all these churches in turn. And uh, these letters are going to be sent, of course, to these churches individually. There's a distinct letter sent to the seven. But the point here is that each congregation is represented by a lampstand. Now, in the Old Testament, the whole church was the lampstand. Here, interestingly, every single congregation is a lampstand. I think that's a reminder to us that every congregation that Christ establishes on this earth is fully equipped uh, to serve him and to worship him. By having the ordinance uh, of the word and the sacrament and by having overseers and the proclamation of the truth and so on, every congregation is set to be a light for the Lord Jesus Christ where he has placed it. Now, of course, this light may shine more or less brightly, depending on the Holy Spirit's work in that congregation and depending on whether the congregation resists the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in some churches, you probably have churches that are churches in name only without the Lord Jesus Christ's presence at all, which is a very solemn thought. But nonetheless, every congregation is a lampstand. And the vision of Christ in the midst of the seven is a reminder of that. And the second thing to notice about where he sees Christ is that he sees him in the midst of the lampstands. In the midst of them. So that he is aware of all the lampstands and he is conscious of them all at all times. None of them are beyond his reach None of them are outside his knowledge. None of them are beyond his care. None of them beyond his rebuke. He is in the midst of the seven. He has to do with the seven. He is present and he is dynamic and active in the midst of his congregations. And as well as where he sees the Saviour, you'll notice when he sees him. In verse 10, we're told that John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. 
when he saw this vision. The Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is the day that belongs to God in a special way. Just as the Lord's Supper is the supper that belongs to God in a special way. Or the Lord's uh, Word is the Word that belongs to God in a special way. Well, so the Lord's Day is the day that is distinctively His. And, and you know what day that is. It is the Christian Sabbath. Or, as it's often referred to in the Bible, the first day of the week. Now, what's significant about that is that that is the day on which Christ has commanded his congregations to assemble. They are all to appear before him, just as we do today. We are here not because we want to be, I hope we do, but not because of that, but we're here because we have been commanded to assemble as a congregation, as a gathering, the called out ones. We are called in to assemble before God and to meet with him and to offer him our tribute of praise. That's what we are doing today and that's what these congregations were doing too. Ephesus, Pergamos, Smyrna, Sardis, Thyatira, Philadelphia and so on. So that reminds us that Christ is present in the gatherings of his people when they gather to worship particularly, of course, on his day. And he's not just present in these gatherings, but he is present there in a distinctive capacity. And John draws our attention to this. He is present in these gatherings as a king. Verse 13. In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Now these are well-recognized regal clothes, royal clothing, flowing robes with a golden band around the chest. He is there as a king, and of course not just any king, but the king of kings and the lord of lords. Not just king and head of the church, but the king and head of all things. And it's interesting that in this chapter, the very names that are given to God the Father are given to God the Son. In verse 8, the Father says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And in verse 11, the voice of Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. So it is Christ the King, the Lord of all, who is present in his congregations every Sabbath day, every first day of the week. Now, because of that, um, can I just say a couple of things? Again, just... Things to note before we really pass on to what's most important for us. The first thing I want us to note is that if Christ has called us to assemble on his day and if he has guaranteed his presence, how important that we be there. Again, it's not a matter of our choice. 
certainly not a matter of whether we feel like it. It's not a matter of whether we feel awake enough or whether we are too tired, but we assemble at his command as king of kings. Now, of course, there are times when we can't. And here we have a classic case in point. John couldn't. I'm quite sure that John would have been in one of these seven churches himself, worshipping on the Lord's day. That wasn't his portion. It was his portion that he be exiled as the last apostle of the church. By the authority of Rome, he was just put onto this craggy island of Patmos. You can still visit it today. There's not much there. There was even less there then. He's on his own. No one to worship with at all. So he can't be in the house of God. But his desire, of course, was there. And his heart was there. And I'm sure as, as he was in the spirit on the Lord's day that he was praying fervently for these churches and for the blessing of God upon them as they were gathering. But, uh, and in connection with actually something I, I said uh, the last time I preached here before I took the call, when, um, when our heart is in something, God considers it done. I said it in connection with Abraham offering his son. His heart was in it. God considered it done. His heart sacrificed his son, therefore God accepted it. The same is true with attendance in the house of God. If you find yourself unable to be in the house of God, but your heart is there, God considers you there. And and not only that, but God actually comes to him. That's an interesting thing. The Lord meets him on Patmos uh, when he could not be with the Lord and with his people. And I'm sure that is still true. That when we are unable to attend the house of God, God will himself make our house or our hospital bed or whatever it is, a small sanctuary where he will meet with us. Although we need to be careful about that. It's one thing to be unable to go to the house of God. It's another thing to be unwilling to go to the house of God and if it's our choice to stay out of the house of God God will judge that choice he will judge it the Lord who is in the church notices our absence as well as our presence make no mistake <clears throat> people sometimes say to me particularly if it's in a large congregation with such and such there and I always say to them well it's easier to notice who's there than who was not there that's not so with the Lord And in these days when virtual services or or Zoom technology makes it possible for people to watch services and to watch church, you have to be extremely careful that you don't choose to do that over and above assembling in the congregation where the Lord has promised his presence. And uh, that really needs to be said and heard right across the land because it is just not the same in the eyes of God to sit down and to watch rather than to go and to participate so let's be very careful but on the other hand when we are unable to be in the house of God God himself draws near to us so if Christ's present that's the first thing it's important to be there and you resolve especially the younger you are today and some of you here are still very young you resolve that every single Lord's Day you'll be found in God's house 
The only thing that will keep you out of it is some emergency of some kind. You be found where Christ wants you to be and where he will be too. The second thing is this, that if Christ is present, how important that we conduct ourselves properly, particularly if he is presencing himself as a king. There is something distinctive about the Sabbath meeting with the Lord when he has called his whole kingdom to publicly assemble and to offer him tribute. It is a very formal gathering. Some people are are trying to turn going to church into just going to anything else as though you were just turning up at at a club of some kind or on occasion when people just gather. But it's not that. We've got to conduct ourselves properly, respectfully, in our appearance, in our behaviour, and in our speech. I think it's fair to say that very often nowadays the presence of Christ is assumed in churches. It's taken for granted, and it's, in fact it's not even take, taken seriously. Now and again you find people saying, well we thank you Lord that you're here today. As though, well... It's no big thing. Is he? I mean, that's the first question I would ask anyway. Is he? Is every single assembly and congregation sure that he's there? Or has he long ago departed the building? That is a question well worth asking. But if he really is here today, and if we are thankful that he is here today, let's consider who he is and the effect that that should have upon us. When John saw this risen Lord, when he saw him in the midst of the churches and inspecting them, what was his response? Verse 17 tells you his response. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. Bear in mind that the vision that he sees of him is as he is in the midst of the seven lampstands on the Sabbath day. And as he sees him like that, as the king of the church in the, house, in the church, examining the church, he falls at his feet as though he was a dead man. Oh, how little, how little, friends, we consider that that is the saviour who is in our midst today. And the reverence that it should inspire in our own hearts. And just in case you think this is an unusual thing, it came to me actually um, that when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he, he says a similar thing. He's talking about people who are speaking in tongues and that. Now there'll be a time to... Uh, to go into that, but he's saying that it's important, he says, to to speak in church in a language people understand. People were taking an opportunity to to show off gifts that the Lord had given them by speaking in foreign languages, which people weren't understanding. He said, of course, (coughs) tongues, he says... um, He says, I would rather speak five words with understanding than ten words in in another tongue. He says, tongues are a sign 
not for those who believe, but for those who don't believe. But prophesying or teaching is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. And he says this, if the whole church comes together in one place, now let's say it's a service on the Lord's day, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there comes in those who are uninformed or they are unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? In other words, here's someone coming in, the proverbial person of the street, and there's people speaking in foreign languages that nobody understands. They just think you're out of your mind. But if people prophesy, if they, if they teach in, in an ordinary language, and an unbeliever comes in, he is, notice, convinced by everything and convicted by everything, the secrets of his own heart are revealed and falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Now, it's easy to pass over that, but notice the effect that the proclamation of the word itself was to have on the people. The proclamation was of such a nature that people recognized the glory and the majesty of God. That he was present in such a way that they were constrained to bow down and acknowledge because the secrets of their hearts were being revealed. They knew that God was in the place. Now that's what I mean by saying that we need to consider that Christ the King is present in our assembly. Now let me take this a little further with you. If he is present as a king, what is it exactly that he is doing? He's in our midst as a king. But doing what? Doing what? Well, if you read the passage closely, you'll notice that what he is doing is judging the churches. Now, there's various ways in which you can think of judging. We'll come to that. But let me just say right now that he is judging all the churches. All the time. In their worshipping assemblies every single Lord's Day. Judging them. That's why you have this description. In verse 15, we're told that his feet are like fine brass or Bronze, I think, is a better translation of that word. Now, bronze, or brass, as it was often translated, represents judgment in the Old Testament. There are many examples of that, but let's just take it for, for now, that bronze represents judgment. And here he judges wherever he walks. Second, you'll notice that his words, in verse 16... The second part of the verse, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. So the very word that he's speaking in the assembly through the Bible is judging. He is passing judgment. The sword is a recognized symbol of judgment everywhere. The power of the sword is the power of judgment. So he speaks judgment into the congregation. And what's more, he has in his hands at the end of verse 18 the keys of Hades or hell and of death 
We could say he has the keys of life and death. He admits into life and he admits into death. He admits us into the very presence of God. He excludes us from the presence of God. He opens up heaven. He shuts heaven. He opens the gates of hell. He shuts the gates of hell. He and he alone has the power to do these things. And it's in that capacity that he stands in the midst of this congregation. He was judging Ephesus that morning hour of worship, judging Smyrna, judging Philadelphia. And here, at nearly 12 o'clock on this Lord's Day, he is in this building and he is judging all of us in exactly the same way. Now, to judge properly, you need two qualities. You need, first of all, knowledge. Knowledge. Every king needs to know what's going on. Um, kings and governments need eyes everywhere. The queen has MI5. They are her eyes in pretty much every nation of the earth. The president of America has the CIA. Israel, Israel's eyes are very famous. Mossad, which is reckoned to be one of the most powerful eyes that governments possess in any country. The Lord doesn't need anybody's eyes. Last Lord's Day we saw uh, Zechariah chapter 4 and the description of God's seven eyes going to and fro over the face of the whole earth. Remember seven, completion, fullness. His eyes see everything. Everything. And the same is true here. The Lord sees everything. We're told his eyes at the end of verse 14 are like a flame of fire. What does that mean? Here he is in the midst of the congregations and his eyes are burning like fire. Well, it just means that they penetrate and they search out, search out everything. There's nothing here that's not naked and open with, to him with whom we have to do nothing. I mean, you here, you hide things from me. I hide things from you. We hide things from ourselves. Never mind hiding them from others. But there's one to whom they're not hidden. God knows every single detail about you today. Everything you've thought since the minute you got up this morning. The motives of your heart. How you came here. How you prepared to come here or, or perhaps did not. How you're sitting here. The kind of judgments that you make, the kind of criticisms that you may make, your resistance to his own kingship or your acceptance of the kingship, he knows it all. He knows it all. That's why every single letter that he sends to these churches, and Revelation 1 to 3 consists of seven letters to these seven churches, they all have the same expression at the beginning. Some of you know what it is. I know your works. The letters are different because the churches were different. They were in different situations, but they all contain that expression. Can we just look at it? In chapter 2 and verse 1, the first letter is to the angel of the church of Ephesus. And verse 2, it begins with, I know your works. Then go down to verse 9, which is written to the church in Smyrna. You have that in verse 8. 
but it begins again, I know your works. Verse 12, to the angel or the minister, if you like, the messenger of the church in Pergamos, right? Well, here you have it in verse 13, I know your works. Again, to Thyatira in verse 19, I know your works. And so we could go on to Sardis in chapter 3, verse 1. And again, verse 8, to Philadelphia. And last of all, in verse 15, to the church in Laodicea. I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I know your works. And it's important that the God who is judging me and judging you today knows us, and he does, intimately. Perfectly. The second quality you need to judge is wisdom. Wisdom. And wisdom is the ability to use knowledge properly in order to either correct, to rebuke, or to encourage, or to reward, and ultimately to reward with life or death. And you'll notice that Christ's wisdom comes out in verse 14 as well. Where his head and his hair are white like wool and as white as snow. This is the pure wisdom of old age. The white head uh, was, uh, of old age was a symbol of, of wisdom. Christ is here portrayed as the Ancient of Days in Daniel. God himself, you see him in Daniel 7, with again his hair as white. This is the wisdom of old age. Of course, he doesn't have old age, but he is the Ancient of Days. He has everlasting wisdom because he is everlasting wisdom. And that tells us that, that the Lord judges as he sees us and knows us, and he will judge us correctly. And he will deal with us absolutely in accordance with what he sees. Some judges have all the information, but they give the wrong judgment. Christ has all the information, but he will always give the right judgment. So here he is, judging us. Now, is it good to be judged? Is it good to be judged? Well, there's a way in which nobody likes to be judged. And you often hear the expression, you know, stop judging me, you're judging me. Churches don't like being judged, and they don't like judging either. They're terrified that people will think they're being judgmental. And if you go to churches today that are are sometimes referred to as seeker-sensitive churches, these are churches that are so sensitive to what a seeker thinks that they do everything to, to satisfy the seeker. So... Make sure the seats are really comfortable. Uh, Make sure sure the sound is good. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But it goes so far as to make sure that the message doesn't actually put them off coming to church. Now, of course, you notice what's happening. They are so seeker-sensitive that they are not God-centered anymore. Don't do anything to make them feel uncomfortable or that they might not want to come back and the goal in such churches is to make people feel good good about themselves and good about life and good about their homes and feel good about their families and good about everything if you can make people feel better about themselves well 
Isn't that what the church is for? Well, is it? And interestingly, where, uh, where we lived in Glasgow, if you turned onto Mary Hill Road, the first church you passed on your left had a, a welcome sign which said, Welcome to the church where no one is judged. Welcome to the church where no one is judged. Is that the kind of church that God wants his church to be? How does that square with what Paul said to the Corinthians, that when somebody comes in, the secrets of their hearts are revealed and they fall down and they worship God? How does that square? How does it square with this? With the presence of the king, whose eyes are like a flame of fire searching into our hearts. How does it square with that? These are just worldly thoughts, worldly priorities, nothing at all to do with Christianity, nothing to do with Christ. It's a false gospel, false churches. Sad to say. The fact of the matter is that when we come to the house of God, we should feel under scrutiny. So, okay, I accept we we shouldn't feel judged by each other. That's Even that needs qualification. I I would like if I was not walking right for you to be able to say so to me. And I hope you would in connection with me. But is it not the case that when we come into the Word of God, we we should feel the Word of God as a searchlight going into the heart, showing us ourselves, showing us our need of cleansing and of change and of repentance? That's, that's what it's about. A holy God. As the word is opened and applied to us. And why is that so vital? Well, friends, one important reason why it's so vital is this. Because the judgment that Christ is passing on his congregations here is not the final judgment. It's not the final judgment. There's a mercy in that. The judgment that he's passing on ourselves today is not the final judgment. His purpose, in fact, is to rectify and to correct. Now, sometimes the message is so severe to some churches that you could say they're on their last opportunity. You get that feeling with Laodicea. The message to her was was so urgent that Christ said to her, I know your works, and because you are lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, I've become wealthy, I have need of nothing, complacent, self-satisfied church. You could just imagine Laodicea's posters and press releases today about how many are coming and... uh, How wonderful and the buzz that there is in Laodicea. And you do not know that you are in fact wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. In my assessment, which matters, the Lord says, it's one that matters. I counsel you therefore to buy from me gold refined in the fire. White clothing that you may be really clothed so that your nakedness will not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. Be zealous, 
and repent. If anyone stands, I stand at the door and if a knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in with him, to dine with him, to sup with him, he with me, me with him. If not, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Even a church like Ephesus, which had so many things in its favor, nonetheless, he said to her, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, change, he says, repent, do the first works, or I will come quickly, soon, suddenly, and I will remove your lampstand from its place. Remove your lampstand from its place. I'll snuff out your church. I'll close it. Unless, he says, you repent. But that's only one side of it. The other side is that he comes and sees so much that is heartening. He comes to the church in Smyrna and he knows their trials and how poor they are, although in brackets I know you are rich. It's not a lovely thing. You're poor, but I know you're rich. Uh, Don't fear these things that you are about to suffer. You will be tried and tested, but be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Or even to Philadelphia. He says this, you have just a little strength, but you have kept my word, and you haven't denied my name. Notice the things that he notices. The church in Philadelphia was obviously quite small, just had a little strength, but they kept his word, and they didn't deny his name. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I'll keep you from the trial that is coming on the world. Hold fast what you have, so that no one takes your crown, and to him who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. In all these things, what Christ is doing is judging. But every judgment that is before the last judgment is a mercy. However bad it, however bad it is, Every judgment that is before the last one is a mercy because it's opportunity to change and repent. And I mean, whatever God sees today, I, I hope he sees a church that maybe has a little strength too, but is faithful and has kept his word. I hope he sees that. I'm sure he does. He may see some of us who are becoming lukewarm, who are falling away from our first love, If so, he's addressing you and addressing you as your king and giving you opportunity to change. This could be your last Sabbath in the world. It could be mine. We don't sometimes take these things seriously enough, but life is short. At its longest, it's really still very short. It could be your last Sabbath. It might be the last judgment that the Lord Jesus is passing upon you. But hearing it, there is an opportunity to change and to respond. Job said, and I'm just closing with this, 
when Job's friends were trying to help him uh, and advise him, they became quite frustrated that he wasn't taking their advice. And he was right not to take it. But they were so sure that Job was a hypocrite himself. And at one point in the book, Job turns around and says, is it a good thing for you if the Almighty searches you out? He says, you're, you're searching me. That's fine, he says, but is it a good thing if the Almighty searches you out? Now let me put that to you. Is it a good thing for you today if the Almighty searches you out? Well, one thing I can say is this, that it's good if you can say, yes, search me, O God. O send thy light forth and thy truth. Search me even now. David said at the opening of the psalm that we sang, Thou hast searched me, O God. It's interesting that he closes the same psalm by saying, Search me, O God. And why? Why does he say, Search me? Well, we'll sing it in a second. But the reason he says, Search me, O God, is this. He says, Search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. I, I know my heart and its deceitfulness. Well, search me even now for that. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Will you not do that? If you even now have a sense that God's favour is not on you, that the king in here is not pleased with you, that you are not reconciled to him, that you are in the church but not in his kingdom, hear him because the warning that he gives you is still tender and there's an earnest invitation. Just say, cleanse me within and say with David too I did not stay or linger long as those that slothful be but hastily thy laws to keep myself I did prepare may the Lord grant us an ever increasing sense that he is always present when we gather to worship him and let us stand to pray O Lord, it is indeed good for us that we be searched out. And uh, we pray amongst everything that you find, that you would find your own work. And in the midst of many things that are wrong and effective, shortcomings and thoughts that we would not desire to be there, may you find a hunger and a thirst for righteousness because you will honour that and you will feed such hungry souls and you will grant them your own blessing. O Lord, be with us then, we pray. Take away anything that may have been inconsistent with your blessed truth. In our precious Saviour's name, Amen. We can uh, bring your worship to a close by singing in that psalm that I was just referring to, and we sang it earlier, 139. And at verse 21.
Now these are, these are very solemn words where he says, Do not I hate all those, O Lord, that hatred bear to thee? There's a kind of hatred uh, that we have for a, a hostile world because of their hostility to God. It's nothing personal. It's not because even of their enmity to ourselves. It's, it's an opposition to them because they are not on the Lord's side and they are on the side of the wicked especially when they rise up against the Lord's people. With, and he, he explains that, with those that up against thee rise, can I but grieved be? With perfect hatred, then I hate. I think that helps us to understand it too, because it's not a self-centered or selfish kind of hatred. It's just focused on God and his cause. My foes I them do hold. In other words, if, if they're against you, they're against me. But he needs to be careful. Even, even when he, he thinks like that, he needs to be careful. Therefore, he immediately says, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. My thoughts unfold. Even in connection with these thoughts, is there any wicked way at all in me? And in thine everlasting way to me a leader be. We'll sing these uh, last uh, three stanzas, 21 to 24. Let's stand to sing.